All right, Ephesians 6, verse 10. Finally, be strong in the Lord and in the strength of his might. Put on the whole armor of God, the panoply of God, that you may be able to stand against the schemes of the devil. For we do not wrestle against flesh and blood, but against the rulers, against the authorities, against the cosmic powers over this present darkness. This is the same stuff that he was talking about in chapter 1, the same stuff he was talking about in chapter 3, that there's more than meets the eye to what it is that we're getting after when we decide to no longer live for self, but live for him who died for us and was raised again. We have enlisted into something that is transcendent and intense. Therefore, take up the whole armor of God that you may be able to withstand in the evil day and having done all to stand firm. Stand therefore, having fastened on the belt of truth, having put on the breastplate of righteousness as shoes for your feet, having put on the readiness given by the gospel of grace in all circumstances, take up the shield of faith with which you can extinguish all the flaming darts of the evil one and take the helmet of salvation and the sword of the spirit, which is the word of God. I'm going to stop there because we're actually just going to focus on the first three verses there, 10, 11, and 12, as we look at the, this passage today. And what I want to do over the course of the next couple Sundays is that first I'm going to look at who is our enemy. And then secondly, how do we go, a war, go to war against him? So this week, interestingly, we're just going to look at who is our enemy. And that we're going to get to know our enemy. And yes, this is a Sunday sermon all about Satan. And that's what's, what's coming our way as we take a look at this in Scripture right now. And, you know, it's, it's, it's interesting that even creation itself speaks volumes to the fact that there is an infinitely brilliant creator who created all that we see. But at the same time, there are these anomalies all throughout, running all throughout, all these fissures running throughout creation that speak to the fact that these flaws are too great to just simply overlook. And it speaks to the fact that there is a conflict that has gone on. Uh, there is a, a Dr. Gertel in, in 62, a theologian, who said, on the one hand, the universe shows too much intelligence, wisdom, and happiness to justify any denial of God. On the other hand, it shows too much lack of intelligence, malignity, it's evil and unhappiness to make belief in God probable. It gives the impression of a magnificent temple in ruins in which its inscriptions expressing profound truth have been maliciously and skillfully caricatured by some unknown person. And that's this tension in which we live. We live in the already and the not yet. We live in the victory of Christ but yet not the final consummation and the restoration where the new heaven and the new earth are all made. And so living in this particular place in history of great conflict, we now make our way through, praise God, not in and of ourselves, but with Christ. And yet Deuteronomy tells us that the secret things that belong to God, to the Lord our God, the things revealed belong to us and to our children forever, um, but, but the things revealed belong to us. I'm sorry. So the secret things belong to the Lord our God. But things revealed 
belong to us, that we may follow all the words of the law. In other words, we have what's been revealed, but we don't have everything. Because all of the secrets, all that kind of is behind another veil, transcendent in reality, we still wait and yearn and groan to try to figure out how all of this works together. But nonetheless, here we have the the great admonition here in in chapter 6 from Paul. Having now prepared the church, not only for a right understanding of who they are in Christ, a right understanding of the intense unity, Jew and Gentile, that the blood of Christ affords them to be able to enjoy in the sweetness of all of that. But after having completed all the wonders of life in Christ and the growing of the body of Christ, he then finishes it with, and let me leave you with this somber note. Now it's a somber note, but it's not in any way a discouraging note, the way that he writes this. Even though he's talking about the devil and his minions and his schemes and his tactics, he nonetheless does it in such a way that you feel like, wow, there's something really special going on here that we take part in and that we can navigate with a short victory. Now, Christ is already seated in the heavenly places, far above every rule and authority, Paul's told us. He's placed all things under his feet, and we've been raised up even to sit with him. Chapters 1 and 2. But we do need to make sure that we appropriate what has been won for us. Because there is still, in this present age, a dominion of darkness. A dominion of darkness in which the chief antagonist is, as the Bible says clearly, the devil himself. And so we have this call to be strong. Kind of like when Joshua was called. Be strong and be of good courage. As, as the torch was passed to him. You know, the, the Qumran community, they were a community of Jews waiting for the Messiah. Some say John the Baptist was in that community for a while. Looking forward to the Messiah. They, they kind of had a, a, an interesting phrase that appears in their writings. It sounds similar to the Joshua call. Similar to the call that we get here, ourselves, from, from Paul. But theirs is, be strong and valiant be warriors don't fall back and even in corinthians over 16 paul says be men be men of courage be strong take your stand now i'll read all of this and if all this seems foreign to you like what do you mean be strong what do you mean take your stand what do you mean there's a conflict what do you mean there's a battle or the word here that is used is literally the word to wrestle wrestle and at the end of wrestling stand as though you're in such a kind of a match where somebody is literally trying to throw you to the ground into defeat. But that you are to stand your ground no matter what goes on. Every time I see Thomas in the parking lot, I'm always ready. He always wants to take me. And I was like, I can't let him get me off my feet. Can't let him get me off my feet. But, you know, again he comes. Again he comes. I'm like, I'm an old man, Thomas. I'm an old man. If you throw me to the ground, it may be a victory for you, but somebody's going to watch you throw a 52-year-old man to the ground, and it's not going to be that encouraging for you. Just protecting myself for the next time that he comes around. I think maybe he'll think twice next time. Maybe Teresa will help him on that. Our adversary is in view here in Scripture. Clearly in view, and we're going to take a look at him a little bit deeper today. We're going to look at his fall. We're going to look at his schemes. And we're going to look at what will be his future. So let's look at his fall. You know, in Ezekiel 28, 
the Bible speaks of first a, a king of Tyre, T-Y-R-E, a king of Tyre who was very much an arrogant king. But just as many of the Psalms speak of David first, and then they obviously then shift and have the Messiah in sight, so does this prophetic rebuke from Ezekiel to this conceited king. And as the rebuke moves from verse 10 to 11 in Ezekiel, 10, in Ezekiel 28, it moves from the king to someone who is obviously well beyond and transcendent in, in existence to that king. And there the, the Bible reads, You were anointed as a guardian cherub, for so I adorned you. A cherub, or the cherubim in the plural, are the guardian angels, the highest order of angels, and... They are the ones that are in kind of the inner circle of the throne of God. They are described throughout the Bible, especially in Ezekiel, as having six wings, three sets of wings. The one, is, one is to cover their, their uh, heads, another to fly, another to cover their feet. Under their wings, even Ezekiel mentions, that there seems to be what looks to be like the, the hands of man. But they're also spoken of as being unspeakably beautiful in, in one's sight. Uh, and they are clothed in light, but whenever they would, would come to earth, they can take on a form as they wish. For example, Gabriel and Michael and Satan, Satan referred to as Hillel, or kind of a light bearer, or Lucifer in a sense, are, are the three named by name in the Bible of these kind of chief angels, or these, these cherubim that we have. And Satan is identified as being initially part of that inner circle with a Gabriel and with a Michael, uh, but, but here at Hillel or this, this, this Lucifer light-bearing uh, cherub. But he says, you are anointed as a guardian cherub, for so I ordained you. You were on the holy mount of God. You walked among the fiery stones. So if that's what Satan looked like, why do we sometimes now picture him, you know, with, with you know, kind of New Jersey devil, horns, pitchfork, tail, all that sort of stuff that goes on? There's a couple reasons. One early on is that that image of kind of a goat was associated with the kind of the cultic religions of Pan. And, you know, he's kind of that, that uh, lute playing little wood nymph that, that we uh, picture. And, and it was all associations of, of evil and debauchery that would go with that. Later on, that sort of image was kind of appropriated into the, the Reformation. So around the 16th century and into the 1600s as well, uh, they would depict... Satan in their pamphlets in a way that was a caricature, in a way that was mocking. Because in their mind, they thought by mocking Satan, they were resisting him. And James 4, 7 says, resist the devil and he will flee from you. Misguided or not, it was their thought, here's a way to, in a sense, maybe get the devil to flee from you. But I say all of that not to say whether that's right or wrong. I say all that just to say, why you now have this kind of view of a devil in the, in the way that he's depicted today. It kind of comes from all of, all of those kind of uh, approaches to him as he was uh, you know, put into, um, into some sort of a form by, by people. So uh, mo moving on though, you were blameless, it continues to say in Ezekiel 28, you were blameless in your ways from the day you were created until wickedness was found in you. So obviously, Lucifer, this cherub, this, this uh, beautiful angel, had free moral agency. Just as God created us in His image with free moral agency, free will, 
So likewise, he apparently created the angels in that way. That's a pretty big risk on God's part, so to speak, because it does mean that with a free moral agent, they can decide at the end of the day which way it is that they will go. And sadly, apparently, it seems as though wickedness was found in him. And how, how did that happen? Well, Ezekiel 28 goes on to say, your heart became proud on account of your beauty. And you corrupted your wisdom because of your splendor. So I threw you to the earth. It's like, oh, wow, but so he's here. Right? I mean, that's a kind of a sobering idea. As a matter of fact, Jesus in Luke 10, after the uh, apostles were coming back, and even the 72 were coming back and talking of the glories, Jesus says to them, kind of like, yeah, you know, pretty good story. Let me tell you something, too, that, that I've experienced. I saw Satan fall like lightning from heaven. You know, it's like Brian Regan in the dinner party when he says, yeah, there's all these me monsters saying all these great things that they've done. He goes, but then there's an astronaut at the, at the dinner table. Oh, yeah. and, and he says, I walked on the moon. <laughs> kind of like trumping the rest of the conversation. So, you know, there's good news sharing, and then there's Jesus. I saw Satan fall like lightning. You win. Got it. But the, the fact that Satan was cast from heaven, that, that he fell like lightning, that he was confined to the earth, apparently, scripturally, doesn't seem, at least, to preclude the fact that God can allow him access, because he is still a spirit being, uh, to, to have access, whether that is to be used to, in a sense, to accuse Job, or whether it is to even accuse the character of Joshua in Zechariah 3, uh, who, is, who is described as one with, with dirty clothes, that is being accused by the accuser or by Satan. And even the, the word Satan is, is that person who is, who is accusing you. He's the one who's trying to tear you down, the, the one that is trying to you know, give you doubt and undermine all it is that you are really meant to be. In Isaiah 14, another passage that, again, some recognize, is it referring to the king, the worldly king, or is it referring to Lucifer or Satan himself? And in the King James, it's, um, it's this word morning star is the, the kind of the phrase that is translated as Lucifer. So that's where we get that, that word from. But anyway, in Isaiah 14, it, it says here, uh, how you have fallen. I'm reading a little bit before what I have up there. How you have fallen from heaven, morning star, son of the dawn. Or in the King James, how you have fallen from heaven, Lucifer, son of the dawn. You have been cast down to the earth. You who once laid low the nations, you said in your heart, and, and this is what the Bible records that Satan would have said in his heart. And there are three, I'm sorry, five series of I will statements of him appropriating this to himself even before a holy God. I will ascend to the heavens. I will raise my throne above the stars of God. Stars of God are likely referring to the... the um, Angelic host. I will sit enthroned on the mount of assembly. Well, uh, enthroned? On the utmost heights of Mount Zaphon. I will ascend above the tops of the clouds. I will make myself like the most high. Yes, conceit. Yes, free moral agency. Combined with great wisdom. Combined with great power. Combined with great beauty. Could result in great gratitude or 
frightening entitlement that corrupts so deeply that there's no coming back from it. Revelation speaks of this time when the great dragon was hurled down, that ancient serpent called the devil or Satan, who leads the whole world astray. He was hurled to the earth and his angels with him. As a matter of fact, Matthew 25, I believe it says that that Satan and his angels will be hurled into the fiery pit. So apparently it's not just Satan, but Satan has angels with him. And earlier in Revelation, in verse 4, if we're to take this to mean who his angels are, this, this dragon swept his tail and, and took with him one-third of all the starry host. And if that's a reference to the angels, then that means that he would have taken with him a third of all the angelic beings, of those principalities and powers and, and uh, arche and uh, exousia, these, these Greek words that I'll mention to you in a minute. But he, but he may have taken all of this, one-third, and appropriated that for himself, somehow or another. Uh, again, if that's what it refers to. Even if it doesn't refer to that, we do know that he has many, many, many other that, that follow him uh, that were angels that are now so corrupted and it's so blinded that all they are is bent on evil all the time. And their goal is whatever it is that they can do to undermine you, God's precious possession. Because the jealousy of the devil, the jealousy of Satan, is now no longer just attached to the rest of the heavenly host. Because most believe that all these events occurred somewhere between Genesis 1 and 2. The reason being is that they were in observance, according to Job 38. They were in observance as the world was being created. And so somewhere between Genesis 1 and 2, the fall occurred. And so now in the fall, Satan now sees us made in the image of God. The very thing that he wants to aspire to in, in, in a variety of different ways. But he now sees us and it's with us that he has issue. And it's with us that he now sets his crosshairs. And he does that through his schemes. The second thing I want to talk about today. Satan's schemes. You know, the, the, the Bible tells us in a very sobering passage in 1 Peter. Be alert and of sober mind. Your enemy, the devil, prowls around like a roaring lion looking for someone to devour. And I've had uh, friends who have spent some time in the Serengeti and uh, some of the game parks even in Africa that have told me of just the, I mean, spine-chilling fright of just hearing the roar of a lion and, and knowing that a, that a pride may be nearby and that, a, that this lion would be prowling around looking for someone to devour. Well, that same person also told me, because, you know, it's kind of like, like being in the Atlantic Ocean and having sharks that are just kind of swimming all about you. And you're so blissfully unaware of it. But yet, there they are. And, you know, I think it was just, you know, last week in Ormond Beach, uh, where my brother lives, as a matter of fact, uh, where a, a six-foot shark, you know, just came and just took, took out the leg of a, of a little boy. And anyway, this friend of mine, 
this is not going to help us if we have a beach day coming up. Um, <laughs> he said, would you send like your little kids out into the Serengeti knowing that there are roaring lions prowling about looking for someone to devour? Right? You, you said, no, like, if you knew there were roaring lions out there, like knew there were. And like, go ahead, kids. You know what? Just be in by, oh, I don't know, let's say by, I don't know, near dark. All right? Because like right at dark, dark. Then the lions are like really, you know, looking for something. So how about just around dark? Right? We would never do that. But he says, but, but yet we send our kids into the water. And, and likewise with those kind of prowlers just looking for someone to devour. And saying, all right, have fun, kids. It'll be great. I know, right? It was just Shark Week. Like what? Last week, too. Man. But... Never mind about the Serengeti, never mind about the Atlantic Ocean, because uh, I'm still going in, but, but here's what I'm not going to still do. I'm not going to just go about my days supposedly blissfully ignorant, but to recognize that our battle, as, as it says right here, is not against flesh and blood, verse 12, but it is against Whatever all of this encompasses. And by the way, people only speculate what all these things are. But the rulers, the authorities, the cosmic powers over this present darkness and against the spiritual forces of evil in the heavenly realms. You really want to go out without a quiet time? You really want to go out without the armor of God? You really want to take this on in your own flesh? This match that, that is up against us is intense. And even though here we know that it is with the ferocity of a prowling lion looking actively for someone to devour, this is also what the Bible describes. Satan himself masquerades as an angel of light. It is not surprising then if his servants also masquerade as servants of righteousness. Jiminy, that's scary. That scares me more than the last passage. Is to know that, wow, it's going to take discernment. Holy Spirit, biblically informed discernment in a community of faithful discernment. That's what it's going to require. That's what Paul was putting upon the Ephesian church. And that's what Paul puts upon us even here and now. You know, what are some of the things that are the schemes of Satan? Well, uh, obviously, he is the one who tempted Eve in Genesis 3. In doing so, he corrupted the word of God. Did God really say? And guess what he wants to do for you? He wants you. He'd be no more happier than for you. One, to miss him as an angel of light. Or miss his servants as servants of righteousness. C.S. Lewis in the screw tape letters says something rather profound. He's like, here is the most effective thing that Satan has done to make us believe that he doesn't exist. Barna does polls year after year after year. And, and he asks the question, do you believe that there is an actual devil, Satan? And even among professing Christians, less than 50% of the people say yes. But then he asks, as another question in the same survey, 
Do you believe in angels? 97% of the people said yes. So, Satan has been incredibly effective. Of, of doing exactly what it is that, that this says here. But also, he is going to continually kind of recast all of his strategies in some form or another so that it has behind it something that is attractive, something that is desirable, and even more frightening, something that seems to be legitimate. And that's why we've got to have our discernment at an all-time high. But again, he got Eve to, to try and think, did God really say? Oh, you know, you, you won't really die. And, and what, what greater joy must Satan have than to realize, yes, even though servants have preserved the word of God all these years, I've been able to effectively torture or twist it enough so that they aren't even actually protected or even guarded for greater victory by it at all. Brothers and sisters, what are you doing with your Bible studies? If you are winging it through this significant and privileged life that you have in Christ, you are heading down a path that has a bag of hurt waiting to be handed to you. And you're going to carry that bag of hurt and stuff is going to jump out of it and mess you up more than you could imagine. You're still going to be holding that bag. People are going to come and tell you about it. But yet, you're going to be so deep down that path, it's going to be so difficult. But all of that is so much easier to deal with, not with a pound of cure, but with an ounce of prevention. With really now, let's decide as the body of Christ, as a community, encouraging one another that we don't get out of this blessing of having for us the very Word of God. Every day, the Word of God being fed by the brilliance and the beauty of what God has preserved through His Holy Spirit to be able to guide us and love us and protect us. Not a day. Not a day. It's folly. Folly to think otherwise. And it's arrogance. And you know what made Satan? Satan? Arrogance. Pride. You know, he tried to pervert the Word of God to Jesus. Jesus knew His Bible. That went nowhere. He tries to hinder God's servants. The very work that God's people... And Paul himself said when he wrote his letter to the church in Thessalonica, in 1 Thessalonians 2.18, we tried to come to you again and again, but Satan hindered us. That's like real results. That's no joke. And there's things that we're going to try and do that will be hindered by Satan. Now, yes, there's also this other extreme, the Flip Wilson approach that I say, uh, where we blame everything on Satan. Right? Well, I, you know what? I, yes, I, I didn't do the dishes last night, Mom. Satan made me do it. <laughs> yes, I didn't study for my SOL or my final exam. Satan made me do it. Right? Or Flip Wilson said, the devil made me do it. The devil made me do it. Well, yeah, we could play that card, and that's also ridiculous, because we are free moral agents. Just as angels are free moral agents, we are free moral agents as well. But let's not, let's not turn everyday opportunities for growth into excuse making or a victim mentality in and of ourselves. Or else we'll never know the growth that we're meant to have. And by the way, the devil can't make you do anything. 
Just as Jesus can't actually make you do anything, and if he could, I'm sure he'd be delighted to do so, but to do that to you would be to no longer let you be made in the image of God. Because you would no, no longer be a free moral agent. You know what else he does? He veils the gospel. Super frightening. Second Corinthians 4. Even if our gospel is veiled, it's veiled to those who are perishing. The God of this age, speaking about Satan, has blinded the minds of unbelievers so they cannot see the light of the gospel that displays the glory of Christ, who is the image of God. That's a frightening prospect. That even though you're putting the Bible out there before someone, they are so veiled, they can't actually be affected, at least at that point in their life, by the very words of God. As a matter of fact, Jesus talks about it in the uh, parables in Matthew 13. In the, the parable of the soils, he, he actually talks about, hey, when, when the seeds fall on the path, birds take it away. And that's not birds. Let me explain what That's Satan taking it away. And if he can't allow the word to be unfruitful to you by just taking it away from you, well, then he causes the word of God to be unfruitful in us. By how? By, by bringing on the heat. By persecution. By family pressure. By tough times that would come our way, making our lives unfruitful. And because Satan doesn't quit. Even though Jesus can gain the victory through the word of God, Satan is not done. He is that jealous of us. And probably all the more so, knowing that we are now reborn of water and spirit. We have been made now and continually be made into the image of God's precious son. And so what does he do even besides bringing the heat of persecution? As we try to live out our lives in Christ, he then tries to bring us, as, as the third soil says, and, and Satan's tactic is, is to really try to take us off the path of Christ by doing this, by, by tempting us and distracting us with riches and with desires of other things, with greed, with alternate agenda, with other ambitions, other affections that so consume us, whether that be the kind of the, the, the sports world, whether it be the graduate degree, whether that be the flipping of the home, whether that be the gaining of extra money. It could be good sounding things, could be odd sounding things, but so long as it takes us away from a clarion focus on doing the will of Jesus Christ, Satan is fine, no matter what it is that is able to cause you the distraction of the third soil. And what happens when, when we give in to those distractions, those desire for other things, those, uh, those lusts of the eyes that even says that are incorporated into that? When, when we allow that to happen, it chokes us off in our life in Christ and it makes us unfruitful. This is a spiritual battle. Every lust of the eye, every desire of the flesh, every lust of the mind that even Paul has talked about here, that is no small thing that's going on. It's not some little picadillo. That is a spiritual war that's going on. And it is Satan trying to wrestle you and throw you to the ground in defeat where he can then stand over you and accuse you that you were never fit for service in the kingdom of God. And once he's got you on the ropes and on the ground and begins to accuse you, my goodness, does he go into effective mode. Revelation 12 says that he accuses God's people day and night because he is the accuser. But we can overcome him by grace, by the blood of the lamb and the testimony of his saints. 
The great dragon was hurled down, the ancient serpent called the devil or Satan, who leads the whole world astray. Hurled to the earth with his angels with him. And then I heard a voice from heaven say, Now have salvation and power in the kingdom of God come, and the authority of his, of the, of his Messiah. For the accuser of our brothers and sisters, who accuses them before our God day and night, has been hurled down. Satan won't just tempt you in his schemes. He's going to accuse you. Temptation, that's pretty clear. He already knows our simple playbook. He knows those desires that rage within you. And to just simply put a, a desire in the path of a stimulus of temptation, James 1 says, can meet and marry into sin itself. And sin, if allowed to really become full grown, brings death. This is big stuff that's, that's happening here. And it's not as though any of us is completely, in some way, immune to it, even if we have been born of God. Because even a candidate that Paul talks about in 1 Timothy, a candidate for eldership, a recent convert who is a candidate for eldership, says he must not be too recent a convert. Why? Or else he may become conceited or proud. And then here's what he says next. And fall under the same condemnation as the devil. Wow, right? Where's the kind of the, kind of the empty uh, security blanket of once saved, always saved in that passage? I think you got to recognize that just because a phrase exists in cultural Christianity doesn't mean that it is something that can supplant clarity of gospel truth that we have before us. It keeps sober with, with all of this. And you know what? The greatest weapon the Bible says that Satan has is not just his temptation and not just his accusation, but Hebrews 2.14 says the greatest weapon that he has is death. And that's what he wants for every one of us. He wants death, but an unregenerate death. He wants you to die outside of Christ. And once that happens, that's his ultimate victory. And here's the beauty of who we are in Christ. If we really are in Christ, we really are in this battle, we walk in that battle without fear. Because Christ has conquered death. We don't even fear death when we allow the Bible to inform our conscience. When we allow faith to be our guide. When doubt has no room in our life in this significant, amazing battle in which we find ourselves. Death is the supreme focus of Satan. He smells of death. He revels in death. That's right. He spreads death. That's right. But Jesus, since the children have flesh and blood, he too shared in their humanity so that by his death, he might break the power of him who holds the power of death. That is the devil. Amen. You stride this earth... That bulletproof, if you stride this earth in that faith. And we'll talk about the, the, the next, as we conclude Ephesians, with the whole armor of God. And we'll go into that. that. That's still waiting for us. All of those strategies, all of those practicals. But let me just finish with Satan's future. The Bible reads in Revelation 20, When 10,000 years are over... Satan will be released from prison and he'll go out and deceive the nations in the four corners of the earth, Gog and Magog, and to gather them for battle. In number, they are like the sands of the seashore. 
They marched across the breadth of the earth and surrounded the camp of God's people, the city he loves. Here we go. But fire came down from heaven and devoured them. And the devil, the devil who deceived them, was thrown into the lake of burning sulfur, where the beast and the false prophet had been thrown. They will be tormented day and night forever and ever. Hallelujah. Amen. You know, the Bible says, to conclude here, little children, you're from God, and you've overcome, you've overcome them, that is, the devil and the Antichrist. For he who is in you is greater than he who is in the world. Satan is in the world. Satan has been cast down. He has dominion over the earth. This is a dominion of darkness until the coming of Christ. And how glorious that will be. But you have no fear of, I don't know, being possessed or all of the kind of the oddities or wonders that popular media might, might show. If indeed he's in you. If Jesus is in you. If you've been born of Christ, born of the spirit of Christ, the one who is in you. That spirit of Christ, that power that raised Jesus from that dead, that power that created heaven and earth, that power that was within you, is more than capable to stand and to hold you for the great and coming day when Jesus redeems us all to his joy and to his glory. But until that time comes, we're in for a bit of a fight, brothers and sisters. We need each other in this fight. We need to rely on his spirit. We need to keep in the faith. We need to be proactive. Any other things would be folly. A simple charge from James as we begin, as we prepare to, to hear the final chapter in this, as we finish out Ephesians, when we move on to the, the last section of here, on the armor of God. Here's my charge. Submit yourselves then to God. Resist the devil and he will flee from you. Talk about, talk about this to somebody in your life. I mean, please, specifically, what does it mean for you, given what's going on in your life right now, to submit to God? And what does it mean for you right now in your life to resist the devil? Amen. Amen.